About 22 years ago, Tim and I went on a trip to Israel. On January the 1st, we walked down the Mount of Olives, walked into the Garden of Gethsemane. You're never the same after you walk in that garden. The kind of impact that it makes upon you, it's hard to describe. There was a young man who was with us. He was a rather hard young man. He'd lived a rough life. Someone had paid for him to make the journey with us, hoping that it would change his life. I mean, he'd been involved in a lot of rough things. We came around from the back of the Garden of Gethsemane, and there's a place there where we generally stop and we'll sing a song or have a scripture reading. Tears welled up in his eyes, and after we walked around the corner, he said, I didn't expect that. He said, that got to me. I've thought about that many times, and in fact, in preparing the lesson for tonight, I wanted the introduction to begin with, what does it take to move you? When Paul met with the elders from Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, He made it clear to them that as he went into each city, God told him the kind of tribulations and the chains that awaited him. And the idea that maybe that somehow would cause Paul to not do what God wanted him to do. And yet he says, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. That doesn't bother me, he said. That doesn't move me. In Ephesians 4 and verse 19, he speaks about some people who being past feeling. Let me ask you a question. I mean, this is a real sincere question. Is there anything that moves you emotionally? Moves you with feeling? What about the side of a little suffering child? When you look on television... And you see a little child that you can count every one of their ribs. And you see the stomach distended from the malnourishment. Does that move you? Or what about a soldier who has returned from battle, who's been there fighting for you and I to be able to enjoy what we do, and you see a young man ready to salute, but he has no hand because he lost it to an IED. Does that move you? Do you have emotional response when you read through your Bible and you read about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? The young man said to me, if that doesn't move you, nothing will. If thinking about the Savior and the suffering that he endured... Gethsemane was a very important place. In fact, the word Gethsemane means olive press. You see, that whole hillside that faces Jerusalem on the east side is called the Mount of Olives because there were olive trees all the way from the foot of that hillside all the way to the top. There was a place there where they would take olives and press them and press out the oil about a half a mile, maybe not even that far, 
from the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Jesus often went there. In Luke 22 and verse 39, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed. And his disciples also followed him. It was a common thing for Jesus to go to this place. John 18 verse 2, and Judas who betrayed him also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. This was a place that you could call out and say, this is where we're going to meet. And they would all know where it was. Same thing, Luke 21, verse 37. If you take an aerial view from the east looking back toward the west, you see the city of Bethany near the bottom and toward the right up a little bit, Bethphage. Right at the very top of that hillside is the Seven Arches Hotel now. Spent a couple of times there in that hotel. But you get to the bottom of it right near the gate and you can see it. It's in the near the center, near the top. It says Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, if you are in the Garden of Gethsemane and you look toward the wall, besides seeing Eric in the photo, you'll see the Golden Gate where Jesus would have entered probably into the city. Inside that garden are a number of old olive trees. These do not date to the time of Jesus, even though they're probably a little over a thousand years old. They say an olive tree never really dies because it just sprouts out a new branch on it and it bears olives. You can see another one as you get a little bit closer. And in fact, if you go there in January, there's black olives on those trees And there's a whole garden of them there and you can visualize where Jesus would have been. The garden would have been big enough because Jesus is going to go about a stone's throw away from Peter, James, and John as he will pray. Today, the Garden of Gethsemane is right across from the walls of the city but in between is the Valley of Kidron. And they planted a number of olive trees in the valley now as well. There's a carving on the wall there at the Garden of Gethsemane. And you think about Jesus being arrested there. And so what that has led me to want to talk about tonight is the agony in the garden. To just take a few moments to go through Scripture and let Scripture speak and see if it can have some sort of impact on us to move us. Then I want to talk about the arrest. Let's begin with the agony. It's a fitting thing for it to be Gethsemane, olive press, because Jesus himself was emotionally pressed there. Listen to Luke 22 and verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly... Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. You think about how he was pressed emotionally. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But Luke, the physician, says that there is falling from his head like great drops of blood. There's actually a medical condition known as hemodrosis where the blood vessels begin to rupture due to the stress and the body actually begins to sweat, not just sweat, but sweat that is filled with blood. 
there was ever anyone who would have had that kind of agony, Jesus would have. There's little doubt as to why Jesus went to the garden. It was a place to pray. And those who are in grief pray. I can't tell you how many times folks have called me on the telephone and said, Tony, we're at the hospital, at the emergency room. One of our loved ones has been involved in an awful car wreck and they're in critical condition. Or one of our family members has just had a heart attack and they're going to life flight them to Nashville to have surgery. And people will say, pray with us, pray for us. James 5 and verse 13, is any among you suffering? Let him pray. If there's ever a time in your life when you need to pray, this is it. Philippians 4 verse 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. God expects us to approach Him in times of stress and times of difficulty. But I want to draw your attention to John 18 and verse 4, where John's record says, Jesus therefore knowing all things that would come upon him. Stop there. Knowing all things. Let me tell you, there are times when I dread certain things because I have been there before. I remember everybody talking about how bad a root canal was until I had one. And then when the dentist comes in and tells you, You've got to have another. You know what's coming. None of us have ever faced death. Oh, we may have been near death. But Jesus knew all the things that were going to come upon him. He knew how he was going to be beaten. He knew the kind of mockery, the uh, kind of heap of scorn that was going to be put on him. Jesus knew that those nails were going to be driven into his hands. He knew he was going to hang on the cross for six hours. That's the reason why he could pray, let this cup pass. At Jesus' greatest hour of need, though, he was let down by his friends. I want you to listen to Matthew 26, verses 41, 43, and 45. You see, Jesus has gone about a stone's throw away from Peter, James, and John. But he's asked them to do something very simple that he wants them to take care of. He said he wants them to watch. And here's what he says, verse 41. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Verse 43. And he came and he found them asleep. Again, for their eyes were heavy. Verse 45, Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? For just a moment, I want you to imagine, what if you were Jesus and you had your three closest friends on the face of this earth with you and you say, All I need you to do is just watch for me. Please, just watch for me. Okay, we'll watch. And you come back and your three closest friends are sound asleep. And you wake them up and you say, 
Please, can you not just watch with me for an hour? And you come back and they're sound asleep again. And then you come back the third time and they're asleep and they're resting. Man, that's disappointing. You go to Matthew 26 and verse 56. All this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Not just the three closest. One is already doing a dastardly deed, but eleven flee in every direction. They're not going to stay. They're not going to be loyal. Imagine the disappointment in the fact that he knew he was going to die. His disciples were sleeping and ultimately they ran away. All those friends in his deepest hour of trial right there in the garden while he's praying are not loyal to him. For just a moment, explore with me the prayer that Jesus prayed. I think it's worthy to look at it. One of the first things you will notice is that Jesus goes by himself about the stone's throw and prays by himself. In the Bible, public prayer is a good thing, praiseworthy. But if you will notice, the most important prayers in the Bible were prayed alone. Matthew 6 and verse 6, Jesus says, But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. What is he saying is, our prayers are not a display of speaking ability. Our prayers are to be between us and God. Chapter 14, verse 23, And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. You see, the truth is, is that when you're by yourself, you can focus on your communication between you and God alone. How important was that in that prayer? Second thing is I want you to notice the intensity, the sincerity of Jesus' prayer. The writer of the book of Hebrews captures this in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, And he was heard because of his godly fear. It tells us about his vehement cries. I would imagine had Peter, James, and John been listening, they could have probably heard the cries of Jesus and definitely seen the tears. In Matthew 26 and verse 39, Jesus prayed, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But he says, if it is possible, let it pass. Nevertheless, not as I will, 
but you will. Folks, that's the hardest thing in the world to do is to pray God's will when our will is different. When you and I want to do something or we think we ought to do something differently and yet we know what God's word tells us to do. And Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done. That prayer was very important. In fact, it was so important that according to verse 44, he left them and went away again and prayed the third time saying the same words. As you think about that prayer, it was so significant to Jesus that he wanted the Father to let his cup pass. Can't happen. Father, is there any other way let this cup pass? No other way. I would like to ask again, it can't happen. Now for just a few minutes, let's talk about his arrest in the garden. Both Matthew and John in their accounts give a very vivid picture of the details of Jesus' arrest. Listen as we read verses 47 through 56 of Matthew 26. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to him, put up your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I can now pray the Father and he will provide me more than twelve legions of angels? How then must the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you did not seize me. But all this was done that might be fulfilled, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all his disciples forsook him and fled. Now John's account, a little bit shorter, says, Then Jesus, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priest and Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. They asked him again, Whom are you seeking? And they said to Jesus of Nazareth. 
Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Now here's the reality. Jesus had done nothing worthy of being arrested, much less being killed. What they have done, they've trumped up charges to try to have some way to kill Jesus because of their malice, because of their hatred, because of their anger. What do you see in the text when you read through that? One of the things I see, they're coming at night. They're trying to hide their actions. Jesus has already pointed out, I sat daily in the temple and taught you didn't seize me then. Why do you come to me now in the middle of the night? Obviously, they want to hide what they're doing. They're coming after him like a violent criminal. You think about the swords. I think about the clubs. I mean, baseball bat kind of items. To take Jesus, the man who had never shown violent tendencies whatsoever, Not only that, they have brought a detachment of troops. But the thing that just captures my attention, betrayed by a friend. Not only betrayed by a friend, but betrayed by a kiss. He goes up to him and he's already signaled the rest of them, the one I kiss, that's the one you seize. I can't hardly vision having 12 of the closest people to me on the face of the earth desert me, but one of those 12 to betray with a kiss, to lead to death. We often sing about the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's a place of rich meaning. It emphasizes to us the agony that Jesus was willing to endure. It wasn't just to show something. Jesus died because of our sins. Every time I tell a lie, every time that I have a bad thought, every time that I am violating any of God's laws, That's a part of what put him on that cross. That's a part of what brought that agony. And I think about that great song, I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given for me? Paul, in writing to the Galatians, said to him in chapter 3, verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was portrayed, clearly portrayed among you as crucified. You see, the whole purpose of the lesson tonight was to try to help you visualize from Scripture that Thursday evening as Jesus entered that garden and the prayers that he prayed And the agony that he endured, all because 
of you and I and our sins. But Jesus did it willingly. And Jesus did it to save your soul and to save mine. But he has a few conditions that he sets forth that you and I must take part of to enjoy that forgiveness. He says that we must believe that he is the very Son of God. John 8, verse 24. If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He expects all of us to repent of those things that we've done wrong. A change of mind resulting in a change of action. Luke 13, verses 3 and 5. I tell you, no, except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. He expects us to confess him as the Christ. The eunuch did that in Acts 8, verse 37. And then to be baptized for the remission of our sins. I'm persuaded the majority of this audience has already done that, but some of you here tonight have not. And if I could privately say to you, what's holding you back? You look at what Jesus did. Does this move you to want to do what he calls upon you to do? I hope it does. Not an emotional response, but a response of love for Jesus' sacrifice for you. Are you one of his children like a Judas or like a Peter or like any of the rest of him that's turned your back on the Lord? What we'd like to encourage you to do tonight if you need to respond in repentance, we'll pray with you. What a wonderful privilege we have. God has spared us to this time. And if you need to respond to him, would you please come as together we stand and sing.